And um, it's always interesting. I want to welcome my guest, Dr. Shiva Ayadori. Uh, Dr. Ayadori is running for the U.S. Senate in Massachusetts in 2018. Um, he um, has an interesting history, uh, Dr. Ayadori, Shiva. Education and innovation. You know, the first process really begins in India. You know, I was born... Uh, in India, my parents came here in 1970. Some of your viewers may know, or you may know, India has what's called a caste system. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were considered the low caste or untouchables or deplorables of India. Wow. So the fact that my parents even made it here is significant. In fact, when I first came to MIT, a lot of the Indians there would ask me my last name because these guys were the upper caste Brahmins. So I found them to be, frankly, very, in some ways, a form of racism, you know, or casteism, if you want to say it. So the, so the fact that my parents made it here in 1970, and I was seven years old when we came, so for me coming to America, I could recognize the significant opportunities this country afforded, and I could also recognize a duty that I had to the fact that I came, I was very fortunate to be able to come here, and in fact, when I landed, you know, I had shorts on, getting off Kennedy Airport in December, mm -hmm. and so you can imagine snowing, yeah. so we went to the Salvation Army to get out our clothing, we settled in Patterson, New Jersey first, and over the next seven years between 1970 to around 78 my parents moved through four different public school systems you know they didn't have school choice so my parents mm -hmm. model school choice was get to the better public earn whatever you can and move right. so we went from patterson clifton Persephone, and ended up in livingston mm -hmm. which is a very uh it's a nice town yeah very wealthy predominantly jewish mm -hmm. a neighborhood very uh great school system etc right so that was my process, you know, you know, but I had a paper route, I played uh, soccer, baseball, you know, wasn't just a nerd. But by the time I was 14, Chuck, I had gotten to a point where I had completely finished all my calculus courses, my math courses, my, my high school I had to offer by the ninth grade. My parents were concerned I was going to get bored, and luckily I got uh, offered a amazing opportunity. Forty students were selected in the United States, this is in 1978, to go take a special intensive computer science program at New York University. Mm-hmm. So my dear mom would drop me off at 6 a.m. in Newark, Path Station, yep. and this 14-year-old kid would take his train into New York. You know, nowadays parents are afraid to send their kids down the street. Right. I realize being a parent. But um, this was right at the cutting edge, right at the very beginning of the whole uh, computer era, you know, when you got into computer science, right at a time when things were starting to happen. I just also want to say that um, it's a kind of historic footnote, but... In Boston, we also have what are known as the Brahmins. Exactly, you the know, Boston they, Brahmins. Yeah. yeah. Okay. That's but. why it's interesting, right? It's interesting. <laughs> it's interesting. Um, so, you know, uh, we'll, we'll come back to that. But I think the key point here is what you say is extremely important is that was a time when computing was just emerging. And, the you know, so the the here was a futurist. It was a professor at NYU called Henry Mullish. Mm -hmm. He could see into the future that we were going to need software engineers. So he had this willingness to entertain high school students and educate them. And this was not a, it was like a military, like Navy SEAL type program. Right, right. I graduated top of that class and that was now the summer of 78. I finished that up and my, um, I needed another challenge. My mom was working at a small medical college in Newark, New Jersey, predominantly all African-American, a lot of most people still are afraid to go into Newark now. Mm -hmm. And um, she introduced me to a physicist by the right. name of Les Michelson, who had just started one of the early computer networks, which interconnected three of the campuses, Newark, Piscataway, New Brunswick. And he said, Shiva, don't drop out of high school. I give you a challenge. And the challenge was this. Many people may not know, uh, probably a lot of the students listening are under the age of 40, 
But in 1978, you got to understand if we can swing back the clock. You know what? What was the role of women, for example? Women mm-hmm. essentially had four jobs: nurse, teacher, um, secretary, or house mom. Right. Right. That was a role. In this institution, thousands of different offices. Every office had typically a doctor and a secretary, always a woman. Mm-hmm. And the way they collaborated, they didn't have social media, they didn't have Facebook, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have Reddit, they didn't have email. The way they collaborated was the old-fashioned inner office paper-based office mail system where a secretary, the boss would go and dictate to her a letter that on her desktop, which is a physical desk like we're here, had an inbox, an outbox. Behind her were file folders. On her desktop were a... Um, a little uh, box with paper clips uh, with a Rolodex, which had her address book. She had a physical typewriter. She'd take paper, put carbon paper, type a memo, which had a very particular structure. To, from, oh, yeah. I'm old enough to remember. Yeah, you remember that. this. Sure. And then you'd write a memo, and you'd and then you'd have attachments. This is how collaboration took place. If you were going to hire someone, you'd write a cover letter, attach your resume, you'd forward it to people, get their comments, research things. So I was asked as a 14-year-old kid, by Dr. Michelson to convert this entire system to the electronic version. Now, you got to remember, in 78... That's were, amazing. Yeah, so there were ways to exchange text messages dating back to the Morse code. Sure. Of the 18, you know, so even on those computers, you could do little pings of messages. But I was asked to convert this entire thing, inbox, outbox, folders, into the electronic version, and I called it email. Not only did I name it, a term never used before in the English language, but I also wrote 50,000 lines of code. So you invented the term email. Not only did I invent the term email, but I actually invented the system as we know today as email. Mm-hmm. And I inv- and, and this kit and it was a weird. The only reason I called it email was a Fortran language in the operating system only allowed five characters. It was a not so obvious term. The interesting thing on it, from a legal standpoint, and and it shows sort of the problem when you have lawmakers in um, Washington who are not technologists, not engineers, not scientists. These guys didn't know what software was, so to them, software was sheet music. Okay? Right. And there was no ways to protect software in 1978. In fact, the way that they protected it was there was no protection. In 1980, however, um, the, uh, the, software, the, the Computer um, Act of 1976, which I didn't know was amended to become the Computer Software Act of 1980, which allowed a software programmer or software inventor to use copyright law to protect their inventions. Now, I didn't know any about this. I won uh, one of the major Westinghouse Science Awards, went off to MIT. In fact, when I came to MIT in 1981, on the front page, three students were highlighted. Chuck and I was one of them mm-hmm. for having invented this email system. So let me let me just get this. So my guest is Dr. Shiva Ayadori. He is also a candidate for the U.S. Senate here in Massachusetts coming up in 2018. Uh, that uh, Dr. Ayadori actually invented the term email as a young man in New York, one of the cutting-edge uh, researchers in computer science. Continue. And also invented the email system as we know today, not just the term. Because prior to that point, Chuck, people had thought it impossible, and we have this documented in a December 1977 report, that you could actually create a system to do all of these functions. These were the high-end guys in the military. Remember, these guys were nerds who were just trying to exchange messages. You see, they had such a hubris, such an ego, they thought, oh, a secretary could never use a computer. Remember, there was this segregation. The guys in lab coats who were highly technically trained used big mainframe computers. Women, you know, Mm -hmm. did the secretarial work. The notion of a secretary using a computer was thought impossible. 
You know, this this recent movie, Hidden Figures, gets into some of that. It gets into some of that, w- yeah. Women, women. working at, uh, at NASA, how unusual exactly. that was but, back But then. remember, this was not at NASA. This right. wasn't at MIT. This was at a small medical college in the heart of Newark, New Jersey, with a 14-year-old kid, a great mentor, loving parents, and wonderful, dedicated public school teachers. So the interesting thing was when I came to MIT... I was uh, elected fre- freshman body president, mm-hmm. and I got invited to the president's house. And Paul Gray was the president of MIT then, and he said, you know, it's really unfortunate the Supreme Court doesn't recognize software patents. You should actually copyright it. And copyright wasn't simply putting a C with a circle around it. You had to take all your code. And remember, I'm only 17, 18. Right. Submit it. There's no, uh, I didn't have lawyers. You had to get the forms. There's no PDF files. It was a very arduous process. On August 30th, 1982, I was officially recognized as the inventor of email when I was issued the first U.S. copyright for email. So those are the facts, Chuck. A young teenage American kid in Newark not only wrote 50,000 lines of code to capture all those features, called it email, and in fact um, got the first U.S. copyright. There's no So you own a copyright to email. Right. At a time when that was the only way to protect software, it was only 1994, Chuck, is when the Federal Court of Appeals, Circuit Court of Appeals, allowed you to use patents to protect now, I wanna software. Now, a- I want to ask you somewhat of a pecuniary question here. You must make a fortune from that. No, no, you can't. So here's the interesting thing. <laughs> this, this shows what happens when you have nincompoops in Congress mm-hmm. writing laws who don't understand technology. You see, they thought in 1980 software was sheet music. Remember, copyright law only protects the literal work. So, for example, if I wrote Romeo and Juliet about two lovers having problems with their family, and you wrote something called Romeo and Juliet, and you changed a couple of the characters, right? Right. It's not protected because it's a literal work. So, only if someone copied the exact code. Copyright law does not protect design, right, ideas. That's what patents do. Mm-hmm. It was only 1994 did they realize that uh, software was a digital machine. You see, but I couldn't patent it then because it was prior art. You know, this brings up... The net of it is I didn't make a penny. I made a lot of money doing other things. Gotcha. But... It brings up a political question, though, when you say that Congress doesn't understand technology and patents, and yet they're making laws. Um, I recall reading an interview with uh, the late Senator George McGovern. He ran for president in 1972. Um, He said that after after retiring from Congress, he started a bed and breakfast in Connecticut. After a year of running that business, they went bankrupt. And he realized that after all those years of being in Congress, and he'd been in Congress probably for about 30 years, and writing laws that affect business and regulating business, he didn't know a damn thing about business. And that he actually had to come to that from direct experience. So what you're talking about here is the kind of the disconnect between people who represent us in Congress and whether or not their representation reflects real experience, which it doesn't, anyway. Exactly, and I think you make a really good point, Chuck. Look, the reality is this. The founders of this country were visionaries. They were futurists, you know. They they were children of the scientific revolution, the Enlightenment, and their fundamental goal was to create a new innovation, America, where in this new country, that you and I could have a direct connection to our creator, whatever you want to call that, creator, okay? And there was not supposed to be any intermediaries, no monarchs, no King George, none of that. Because the old model was the king said he was a direct connection to God. And the idea was to remove that. And so each one of us could use reason, 
mind, body, and spirit to understand that connection and innovate and create and enter into the unknown and through our own will create things. That was it. That was the innovation called America as put into the Constitution. Yes. Mm-hmm. What occurred after that is we've seen people like Elizabeth Warren and, in fact, political hacks. All right. Before we go there, I yeah. just want to mention, let's bring things up to the current time. You're a resident of Massachusetts. You're a graduate of MIT many times over, summa cum laude, get many degrees. You're a doctor of, 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 of computer science. Um, you're a very successful businessman here in the state. You live in Belmont, right? I do. Okay. And now you've decided to run for the U.S. Senate and challenge incumbent Elizabeth Warren. So I just want to get, before we get into that, I want to make that identification. Continue. Yeah, sure, Chuck. So it's, yeah, so, you know, uh, the key is, I think you pointed out earlier, look, in my position, the founders and what I understand and what I know is the founders of this country were not political hacks. They were not lawyer lobbyists. They were not academics. These people were soldiers, workers, blacksmiths, inventors, entrepreneurs, architects, inventors. They created things. The notion of creating America was another aspect of their creation and fighting for that. And the idea was not to have career politicians. You were supposed to serve and go back to your farm or to your other... You always had another job. This was not supposed to be a full-time job. What's occurred, to your point, is when you give the story of McGovern, we have people who don't know what software is. They don't know what robotics is. They've never started a company. They've never had to manage cash flow. And yet they're saying they can fix things. They can't even fix their own lawnmowers. Yet they say that they can run a business and they're passing or turning up taxes or lowering taxes. These guys don't know the fundamentals of what it takes to be an everyday person contributing to this economy. We've created a political class. And my journey into this country, I talked about immigration. It went into education. You know, MIT, as you said, by the way, just to correct us, four degrees from MIT. My PhD is in biological engineering. But the point is, I went through the public school systems, and I went through some of the best education in the world. But the third aspect of my experience was innovation and entrepreneurship. And I started seven successful companies, given hundreds, potentially thousands of jobs to people in Massachusetts. Had to balance and had to bring in sales by myself. Had to struggle. Had to learn how to hire and fire employees, deal with all the regulatory issues. These are the day-to-day things which small business people and any business person traverses. Okay, so then not only are you a scientist and with a PhD in engineering, but you also... As a businessman, had to wear many hats. You had to market the product. You had to sell the product. You had to administrate. Customer com- service. Customer service. Administration of a company. You learned all of these different skills, which is cla- you know, the classic American archetype. Not that- at a business school, by the way. I learned by diving in. Well, most people, even yeah. at business school, do. But, yeah. but putting that aside, you, know, you, you, pr- you bring up accurately that we're a nation of entrepreneurs, of business people. That's what makes America different in a way. It's the first time in world history that a society honors that. You know, traditionally, exactly. if you look at other societies, they, they, they don't, you know, the merchant, the businessman is on the lower side of the social spectrum. This country's always been a nation of business people who, uh, you know, who understand that they have to actuate themselves, make something of themselves, and that, yeah, that was the founding ethos. Now, what you're talking about to me as a candidate for the U.S. Senate it very, and I'm not saying, I'm not putting you in any particular camp here. I'm speaking for myself. It reminds me of what President Trump is all about. You know, you have here somebody who's not a politician. He's not a professional. He's not a member of the sort of the 
elite professional class, the the sort of the managers that has is, has been a trend growing in this country, going back to the early 20th century, and, and the philosophy of Randolph Bourne and the the administration of of of, of, of uh, Woodrow Wilson, where you had transfer of governing powers to a sort of an unelected class of experts, quote unquote, who would basically be there no matter who was elected and who would begin to run things. President Trump, in his inaugural address, he stated it plainly. If there's one thing we could say, he was going to take power back from them and return it to the working person himself. He's a super successful working businessman. That's his constituency. That's who elected him. You know, he understands how to make things happen, how to get things done. And he understands success and failure. You know, he's had a few bankruptcies, which actually adds to the overall color of his experience. He knows what it is to go in and, and have something not work and then figure out how to make it better next time. And, and that's why, when you get down to it, there is this war against him. And it's not just the liberals or the Democrats. It's establishment Republicans. It's internationalists. It's countries exactly. all over the world. This elitist class that wants informal power. They don't want elected power from the people, representative power. They want to have, like, kind of bureaucratic power. And I think that uh, President Trump's chief strategist, uh, Stephen Bannon, laid it out clearly at the CPAC convention when he said, our job is to deconstruct the administrative state and that we're going to be at war with this state and with these elites every single day that Trump's in office. And that war is a serious one. They want to take him out. And they're doing it even today in hearings. I mean, they'll do anything they can to concoct some cockamamie conspiracy theory. And if it's not one thing, it'll be another. Getting back to you. Well, now, Chuck, I think you make yeah. a really good point. You know, to the liberals and the quote-unquote... I, I want to put the quote-unquote around liberals and quote-unquote right. around left. In fact, quote-unquote around socialists and quote-unquote around communists. Because, you know, I was a student of all types of political history, including Marxism-Leninism. Sure. You know, some people said Bannon you point, was a Leninist. Right. You know, if people actually go read the truly the works of Marx and Lenin, they will find something very peculiar. First of all, Marx praised Lincoln for him doing what he was doing, extending the American Revolution. Lenin was actually for the destruction of the state. Okay, right. the state apparatus. Well, and ultimately. Ultimately, but one I mean, of the he points, wanted to use the apparatus of the state to get to this utopian condition that well, they yeah, call yeah, communism. But, 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 but I think one of the interesting points, just from an engineering perspective, right, mm -hmm. is that uh, the, the, the notion was that if you did not work, you did not get paid. You did not eat. Okay? A lot of the quote-unquote socialists and quote-unquote communists forget this. The, the heart of it, in fact, Marx called it lumpenism for those people who did not work. You right. were supposed the to work. The lumpen proletariat. The, the lumpen, mm -hmm. and, and Marx was against that. So just to, as an aside, right. the, the point I bring up is when you gave the reference to Bannon, what we have going on right now, um, look, I've never voted in my life, even though I've been a citizen since 83, because I saw the two-headed snake, Demo you know, establishment Democrats and establishment Republicans. Um, not to say they're not some good uh, people in the Democratic Party and Republican Party, who, but they're constrained by the engine, by the machinery. But... When Trump ran, I was absolutely enthused because he was say, he was using his platform not to basically pussyfoot around, but he was hitting these big issues. He was exposing the collusion in the media. He was exposing the elitists in the, in the academics. He was exposing the fake news. And to me, this was very important for me because you see what happened was in 2011, 
just getting back to the email story, you know, I never made a penny off email. I made a, millions of dollars out of doing other inventions. Mm-hmm. It was on the front page of MIT for doing many other things. But in 2011, my dear mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis. In a beautiful suitcase, Chuck, she had saved all the materials from back when I was a kid, inventing email, all the software, all the code, the tapes, the copyright notices, everything. And three months before she died, she presented this to me. The editor, the technology editor of Time magazine, Doug Ameth, reviewed this content, and he wrote a beautiful article called The Man Who Invented Email, November 2011. Mm -hmm. I was going to donate all this material to the Smithsonian, and... uh, I mean, to the uh, MIT uh, Museum. And MIT said, you know, we'd be stealing it. It belongs in the Smithsonian. Smithsonian contacts me on February 16th in a, during an honoring ceremony, goes into the Smithsonian, and a young Washington Post reporter, doing her job, wrote a beautiful article saying Shiva Idre honored as the inventor of email. That's when the proverbial shit hits the fan. Okay. What I mean by that, yeah, the shoot hits the fan, sorry to say it. It's okay. Uh, sorry about that. Is What occurs was that the the mainstream academia, the mainstream media, who had already written the narrative about where email came from, gets perturbed, right? And that narrative was email must have come from the military-industrial academic complex. You know, that text messaging was equivalent to email. Right, you know something, I've heard this, I mean, from liberals especially, they say that um, the computers were invented by, was it DARPA? or Well, well, networking, some early stuff was done by DARPA, okay? Mm -hmm. But they didn't invent email, okay? okay? They were doing simple text messaging. But the history is you see this huge vitriol. People call me a fraud, all sorts of horrible four-letter names. Leading that was Gizmodo and Gawker Media. If you remember, Gawker Media claimed that they're a liberal institution. They're into, you know, they support blacks. And yeah, and they were sued gays. by um, Hulk Hogan. Sued Hulk Hogan them. and put so them out of business. Behind them was the military-industrial academic complex that mm-hmm. Eisenhower talked about because the notion of email being invented by a 14-year-old American kid in Newark blows their mind that it must interrupts come from elite institutions mm-hmm. from the triangle of Silicon Valley, MIT, right, big military. So what you see is this, even though I had gotten my four degrees, all sorts of awards, I became a pariah, sort of a not-so-good Indian. You see, the insidious aspect of racism, and they like minorities and immigrants as long as you stay on their plantation. Right. Right, mm-hmm. and I was being a good Indian, right? I was part of the narrative of inclusivity and diversity, which, quote-unquote, liberals talk about. But when this good Indian said, wait a minute, no, 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 no. Yeah, I did a lot of great things at MIT, but email was done before I came to MIT. That changes this narrative because it means, wait a minute, innovation can occur by the real triangle of a loving family, you know, mm-hmm. dedicated public school teachers and mentors in Newark. That's where TV, by the way, was invented by a 14-year-old kid in Franklin, Idaho, under similar conditions by a guy called Philo Farnsworth. It took 60 years for Philo to get credit. Now there's a statue of him in the halls of Washington. My point is that the liberal elite, the self-serving elitists, they want to control narratives. The invention of email is a very powerful story because it's how the state apparatus wants to control the dialogue and the narratives. So when you look at something like the Paris Climate Accords, right? Mm-hmm. Or you, th- you talk about Elizabeth Warren, or you in fact talk about establishment Republicans, or the Globe or the Herald, both of them want to control who fights against Warren. They don't want a guy like me going after her, because right. I will hit her hard, expose her, but I'll also perturb the existing Republican establishment. At the same time, they did not want to see Trump elected. Exactly. They you didn't know, want to in see a Trump. sense, they... They kind of brought him. They they allowed him to come in in the beginning because they thought he TV would entertainment. 
entertainment and right. that he was, they were making money from it, frankly, because Trump generates income for media. But also they thought that he would rough up whoever would win right. to the point where then they could use it. But, but the fact that he won has sent them into such a state of shock that, uh, th- that they don't know what to make of it. And by the way, one of the things that I think contributed to Trump's victory, and this is something you're doing right now, is that he did a lot of radio, did a lot of media. He'd be up at 5 o'clock in the morning doing radio shows all the time. You heard him on the air. He was made himself available. He'd call in. He would do interviews. And I think that he connected with people as a result. I mean, they can't filter him. That's why they're flipping out over his Twittering. You know, even though his Twitters sometimes go a little bit off the deep end, I don't like it when he gets into, you know, I don't care what he thinks about some stupid TV show. Nevertheless... They can't filter it. They can't craft it. Yeah. He can come out there and has a platform and he can speak and say whatever he wants and it goes up there and it drives them nuts. Yeah. I, I, look, it, it gets back to the, the core notion of the founders, as, as Chuck, I'm sure you know, and, and the viewers listening, if they just go study American history, Thomas Paine, Jefferson, these guys, Thomas Paine wrote the famous treatise Age of Reason. It was for us to use our own mind and to directly look at the world. So if you believe there was a creator, the notion was there were natural laws, gravity, force equals mass times acceleration. Right. The goal was for us to understand that using our own mind without any intermediaries. Elizabeth Warren and the self-serving elites think they actually know better. But I know that people listening know better. Individuals know better. But this notion of coming in between us, I think you'd made a very interesting point when you talked about this whole managerial class, this bureaucratic class that got created to be literally the intermediaries between people who actually do work for a living and the wealth that they create. That middle layer got created with the notion we need managers. What's very powerful about technology now, it's eliminating those layers. You know, one of the companies I built many, many years ago was a company called Millennium Productions, where we had this notion, because I have a degree also in art and design from the Media Lab, a lot of my friends are artists, that we should eliminate those middle people because a, a, a friend of mine you know, who's a musician or a friend of mine who's an artist, they have these gatekeepers called agents, right? Mm-hmm. And they control um, the ability to distribute one's work to the public. Well, the Internet has removed all that. And I believe technology will also remove these politicians. When you really look at it, this bureaucratic class is unnecessary. It may seem like a wild... Uh, point to put forward, but everyone should ask for themselves, what does John Kerry really ha- had done? What does any of these guys who actually don't know anything actually contribute? You know, I think for me, what's <laughs> exciting is, yeah. you know, I don't, no one, I don't need a political consultant to tell me how a biotech company runs. I've run one. No one needs to tell me what is AI. I've r- written AI. No one needs to tell me the software development process. No one needs to tell me the life of an entrepreneur or a business person. I don't need consultants to tell me that I know that because I come from that group. And I think this was a notion of the founders of this country. And what Trump represents to your point is that. And he, he's perturbing the entire political class, the lawyer lobbyists. And so what we're seeing right now is literally a civil war. It's really literally a civil war because when Trump won, it was basically a new shot was fired like in Lexington. And it's the most consequential election since 1860. Definitely. I mean, it's uh, it really is an opportunity that, I mean, I try to talk to people. You know, obviously, um, you know, I'm not going to reach the hard left, and I'm not going to. Well, I waste, think we can. I'll give you one well, area. Let that, me just yeah. say, let me just yeah. say. I mean, I'm not going to. The hard left is an exercise in futility because 
they despise Trump for reasons that are understandable. I mean, if I was on the hard left, I'd hate Trump, too. Trump is dismantling almost a century of their building up this authoritarian infrastructure. You know, the, the nanny state where government controls... The state capitalists, the crony capitalist state. Yeah. Crony capitalism where, where, where government controls health, welfare, education, as many areas of your private life as possible. You know, we're talking about the top 1%, as, as Elizabeth Warren says, millionaires and billionaires, mostly on the left, um, you know, who are interested in this kind of informal governance, you know, not, you know, the kind of controlling the high ground of influence and, and power. Um, so, you know, they, they don't like, they're going to, Trump is challenging that. They also, you know, he doesn't want insane policies like open borders, which uh, is, uh, you know, if you look at it, they don't want to discuss that because it it's doesn't make any sense. No sovereign nation simply you know, puts down their border. You know, you control who comes into a country in the same way that you decide who goes into your private home. I mean, that's just, animals understand this. I mean, you try to invade a bird's nest. You know, it's, it's, it's just a basic fact of human nature that the reason we set up sovereign nations is to protect the national home. They don't want that. They want open borders because they believe in world government. They want to have, uh, you know, high taxes to confiscate wealth and redistribute it. They want to have, you know, regulate businesses. They want to have appeasement abroad. They want to have judges act like dictators on the bench. So, yeah, they're not going to support Trump. He's against those things, and he's actively uh, as such. But the people we can reach is the broad, liberal, kind of mushy types. People, frankly, like that are students here at Tufts University. People who are, they hate Trump for, because they want to be part of the beautiful people. They want to, they want to score in dates. You know, they want to pick up a lady. You know, they, want to, they want to go to these exciting rallies. They want to be in, on the in crowd. It's social pressure. And they also get a subtle message when they see someone who isn't part of that social conformity. They see what can happen. They can be denounced. They could be hurt. They could have their job. They could lose their, their, their reputation. So they go along because it's easy. They go along because, you know, they can keep their head low and they, they internalize this stuff and then they get into it. Those people can be reached, but they have to be reached with care and with love and with patience and with... with Gradualness. You ask them simple questions. You bring them into an inkling of thinking because they're basically well-meaning people. Yeah, one of the interesting areas, let me give you an area that, um, you know, when I was at CPAC, right, where I announced my candidacy at an event, mm -hmm. um, that night there was a bunch of young, uh, you know, college students who came by. Right. saw my CPAC page. They said, hey, will you support Trump? And I sat down with them. First there was five, and there ended up being like 25. And I walked them through just a very logical, rational argument. At the end of it, they said, you know, you're really right. Trump is actually not a bad guy. So let me give you one argument here that brings out the, the, uh, the hypocrisy here. Take someone like Elizabeth Warren, you know, who I'm running against. Um, and I believe I'm the only one who can defeat her. There was a bill in, uh, called the Monsanto Protection Act. That was what it was called. Someone, people may remember uh, in 2013, I believe, in that time frame, the Congress was not getting together a spending bill. So they had to rush something through in six months called the, you know, must pass bill. 
in that six-month bill, appropriations bill, was a provision for Monsanto. got snuck in there. Mm -hmm. Elizabeth Warren voted for this. It was subsequently called by Dave Murphy, one of the leaders of the activist movements, which every liberal should love, Dave. It's food democracy now, called the Monsanto Protection Act. Elizabeth Warren, to everyone listening to this, voted to protect Monsanto. Everyone should go read this very carefully. What does that mean? Monsanto is one of the most evil companies in the world. They have basically, they came out of war dropping Agent Orange with Dove. They created an organization to do that, tested a lot of the stuff in the island of Hawaii. That technology got translated to what we call Roundup today, glyphosate, which is what we use on farms to destroy weeds. So uh, Monsanto makes billions from selling glyphosate or Roundup. Glyphosate is the actual chemical. Agent Orange. Agent, well, it was a derivative of that. So later on, Monsanto said, wow, these, this, uh, this uh, poison is actually not only killing the weeds, but it's also killing a lot of the corn and the soy, which we're supposed to protect on farms. So then they created their own version of genetically engineered soy, one of the called Roundup Ready Soy, which could withstand their own pesticides. So if you're a farmer who's buying their... Their pesticides, you also had to buy their genetically engineered soy. 97% of the soy in the United States, by the way, is genetically engineered. So when I got into this, you know, I had created my recent company. is called Cytosolve. It's, uh, uh, it's a private company, but we, uh, we believe it's valued at several billion dollars because what we've done is we're able to use a computer to model the human cell on the computer, which means we can test stuff on the computer, which means we can avoid animal testing. So all the people who love animals and want to avoid animal testing, you're talking to a senator who also uh, wants to avoid animal testing. You're talking to a senator, probably the first senator in the United States who's against GMOs. So what we did was we used my technology and we analyzed the molecular pathways of soy, genetically engineered soy and non-genetically engineered. And lo and behold, what we found was genetically engineered soy has... 200% less uh, glutathione, which is the most important antioxidant to human life, plant life, than the genetically engineered soy. We published our papers, you know, as a scientist, uh, and and a professor at University of Florida, State University, attacked us, saying, oh, this guy's a fraud, Uh, these papers are bogus, all personal, nothing on the science. And, And throughout this attack, this liberal professor was saying, I have nothing to do with Monsanto, I'm a scientist. Anyway, a FOIA was issued on the University of Florida. Uh, 4,000 emails came out where one of the emails is an email giving this guy a check for $25,000 to be their spokesman. He's been exposed. My point is Elizabeth Warren, who talks about being against big companies, supported the Monsanto Protection Act, which basically gives them a free license. That act says that if we as the public find something grossly wrong to our health and a court issues an injunction by this new act, the, depart- the head of the Department of Agriculture, which is under the executive branch, can overrule that court's decision. Think about that. The founders set this concept of checks and balances. This Monsanto Protection Act gives a long reach of the executive branch to stop an injunction by the judicial branch. And Elizabeth Warren supported this. Not only that, Elizabeth Warren supported Dodd-Frank under the aegis that it's going to help uh, protect us against big banks. The reality is it destroyed 1,200 small banks right. because of the weight of has, those regulations. It has in it a, a the provision of um, bailing out banks in the same way that in 2008 it, the federal government bailed out Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac when they discovered that they went into receivership. There was a little clause in their contract. Exactly. And that ended up adding about a trillion dollars to the to the deficit money going to the big banks that Elizabeth Warren claims to be against. Now, I just want to comment on this. 
uh, Elizabeth Warren supporting Monsanto shouldn't be much of a surprise given the fact that when she was an, an attorney operating without a license in Massachusetts, um, she uh, defended Dow Chemical Company in a class action suit brought by women who had suffered the Ill, Ill effects of um, breast implants made by, by Dow Chemical. Now, there are women today who are probably dead or they're, they're too ill to, to expose the, what Elizabeth Warren did to them by making sure that they got nothing in any kind of a settlement from a multinational chemical company. Now, this is someone who claims to uh, be uh, championing women I mean, how many women suffered as a result of this? Many, many thousands, I'm sure. And she's claiming to attack, you know, the big corporations. First of all, putting aside the fact that she got more corporate money when she ran for the U.S. Senate in Massachusetts than any candidate in the history of the state. She was a shill. She was nothing more than an insider hack working for various corporations in, as they tried to screw working people as they tried to screw sick people like the women who were bringing a, a class action with regard to Dow Chemical. Now, recently I heard Elizabeth Warren speaking at some left-wing group and everybody's cooing and giggling and, and sighing as she talked about big corporations um, you know, trying to get laws passed through uh, the, um, the Republican Congress that would help them uh, with, with um, you know, lo- loosened standards of asbestos. Well, I mean, what about the fact that she defended, she uh, helped, um, lib- uh, what was it, Travelers Insurance screw uh, working people at uh, Johns Mansville um, who were suffering from asbestos poisoning and who were trying to collect on the insurance policies that they had paid into all their working life, you know, in, in terms of health insurance. She stepped in and made sure that they got peanuts. So, I mean... You know, you know, there's a Freudian con- there's a Freudian term for this. It's called projection. Um, I think it was probably Sigmund Freud. Some early psychologist said that when someone is involved in bad activities or evil activities, uh, they will often project that onto their opponents and overcompensate in that sense. And I mean, Elizabeth Warren is the perfect example of that. I mean, if you take a look at her public statements, she made millions of dollars, uh, you know, working as a side gig while she was at Harvard collecting $375,000 a year for teaching one class. And by the way, her husband also $375,000 a year for one class, and they gave her a house on top of it. And she's there doing these side gigs with various corporations operating as an insider helping them screw working people, and now she's like a champion of working people. Complete nonsense. And she's talking yeah. about high cost of tuition for colleges. I just talked about what she's getting. I wonder why colleges are so expensive. What are they supporting? And she talks about, you know, the millionaires and billionaires. Her tax returns in 2012, $11 million that year. We don't know how much she's worth. And she talks about helping minorities. When she checked off a box at not only Harvard, but UPenn, claiming to be a minority in order to get tenure and screwing another minority who might have deserved getting that, whether you agree with affirmative action or not, it's another question. But the point is she violated those rules. We would think she'd be in favor of that policy. So what you have with her is not only a complete fraud, someone who is utterly the opposite. And look, 
I expect a certain amount of humbug and fraudness from left-wingers anyways. It's usually you scratch the surface and you find out that they're... I mean, that we recently find out Bernie Sanders made a million dollars last year and he bought a third house. You know, okay, I get that. But with her, it's more than just casual. I mean, I would hope that even left-wingers would have to hold their nose. And there's more than a kind of an Orwellian disconnect in the way she's reported as some kind of a champion without any really, you know, they give them a pass. I mean, they did this for the Clintons for, 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 for decades. They got away with practically murder. Some people even say murder, putting that aside. And yet, you know, they were, they, because they genuflected to the left, they were given a pass. But in her case, it's so odious that I would hope people would wake up even on the left and say, what's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, I think what you're bringing up, Chuck, is this massive contradiction. You know, when you study, uh, I'm sure that pe- people listening, if they study the arc of political history, in my analysis, there's always been three dynamics. One dynamic has been the hardcore establishment, which are pretty obvious. The other dynamic has been people, everyday people on the streets trying to get a better day for themselves, fighting. You can call them Tea Party, Green Party, but they're out on the streets fighting for a better day. Then the most insidious group that I've seen is something that I call the not-so-obvious establishment. This group are the people who, who claim that they want to help people, speak the words of change and hope, Obama, for example, or revolution like Bernie, or fight like Warren. But what they really exist, they're part of the establishment. They exist so a set of group can uh, you know, uh, basically uh, uh, wash their sins, and they can take the energy out of the populist movement and drive it back into the establishment. If you look at this past election, Hillary Clinton was clearly the establishment candidate. She was so establishment that George Herbert Walker Bush, G.W. Bush, Romney, Obama's all got to her because they were so scared of the change agent on the other side, which was Donald Trump and everyday people. And then they inserted in there another insidious element, Bernie Sanders. You know, what he was was a not-so-obvious establishment. He talked the word revolution. But he has always voted straight-line Democratic, always. Even Howard Dean said, you know, Bernie's just an establishment Democrat. But the goal was to suck all that energy back to the establishment. A lot of my friends said, Shiva, you should vote for Bernie. I said, watch, he's going to give all of his votes to Hillary. They go, no way, no way, Bernie's not going to do that. And that's exactly what he did. Same thing Jesse Jackson did in the Reagan election. These guys have gotten this down to a very nice... And then the reward comes down later. And, and then, later yeah, and so a lot of you, you know, very sincere people who supported Bernie, who think this works, I'm telling you as a minority, as an immigrant, as a low-caste untouchable, the same thing occurred in my country. Every year when these politicians run, they give people rice, laptops, PCs now. What they really want to do is keep people like me in a cage. They want to let us out to vote and put them back in. And in fact, a lot of the white liberalism... In fact, it's really to admonish your guilt. So I'm saying if you guys are really for change, take a step back. Forget left or right. Forget liberal or conservative. Let's really look at rational thought. You know, my platform, which is not really liberal or conservative, is clean air, clean food, no GMOs. You're not going to find a lot of establishment Republicans mm-hmm. or establishment Democrats. In fact, I just did a movie that Pierce Brosnan and his wife just produced. I'm the main scientist in that called Poisoning Paradise talking about how the uh, the west coast of uh, the western part of Kauai has been destroyed through heavy you know pesticide testing 
And so you won't find and, – and, and if you look at in the movie, there's a list of all the politicians who have been paid off, and that's what's called the deep state. It's very interesting that Melania Trump is not allowing GMOs in the White House. The second part of my hmm. entire thing is, you know, forget – charter schools or all this stuff the reality is we need choice but also the reality is technology and innovation allows us to bring elite education down all the way to a small village anywhere through online educational tools these tools now exist we don't need to have this discussion about choice or not choice the reality is we can transform that the third part is healthcare, obamacare none of this stuff talks about prevention you know, it's all about knives and drugs, which means scalpel, surgery, and invasive use of medication. So most of the entire medical health care model is based on a disease-based model. Look, I've been trained in Western medicine, but I also come from Eastern medicine training. There's a reason that 36 million Americans now practice yoga. There's a reason people go to acupuncturists and chiropractors, because this stuff actually does work. And you can explain it through engineering and science. And the reality is we need to focus people on uh, prevention versus knives and drugs. And no one talks about this because the goal is to get you into the hospital. In fact, Elizabeth Warren's policy of, you know, health care is a basic human right is really about what is Obamacare has actually destroyed the small doctor. You know, thousands and thousands and thousands of doctors have actually had to stop their private practices because of the regulations and start right. working at major hospitals. And I, and I just will point out with regard to Obamacare that... Um because I have a license to sell insurance, and I don't know a lot about it, but I know a little. And that is that as bad as your insurance might be, and I'm not claiming it's perfect, this is a free market, and you have different companies that do different things, and I think insurance needs to be regulated pretty heavily by the state. Um, if you have to go to the hospital or if you get a serious illness, you are a lot better off having private insurance than government-run insurance. I'm telling you right now, you'll be your survivability is much is much more likely, um, and there are many cases that that we could cite to back that up. Now, uh, my guest is Shiva Ayadori. He is uh, the inventor of email, system scientist, running for the U.S. Senate against Elizabeth Warren in the in the 2018 election. Shiva, we're reaching toward the end of the program, so I want to ask you a couple of uh, kind of horse race type questions. Um, are you fielding any kind of an organization? I mean, how, you know, running for U.S. Senate, I mean, I ran for Congress about 10 years ago, and, you know, I debated my opponent, I raised money. Um, are you uh, doing anything in terms of getting yourself positioned to really do this thing? Yeah, first of all, I'm the only, so let me tell you, I, uh, to me, uh, it's a great question, Chuck. To me, this is no different than any of the seven companies I've started, the successful companies. Here, the product is your message and the authenticity of who you are, number one. Right. The marketing is getting out there, and the sale is people contributing to your campaign and giving you votes. So we've already, you know, I was the first candidate to announce. I didn't do an exploratory. I jumped right in. That's what entrepreneurs do. Right. We don't like sort of dilly-dally around. We jump right in. I did that in March. Okay. Uh, we have our, uh, anyone who wants to help us, we have a beautiful office. You know, I have a beautiful building I own in Cambridge, um, 20,000 square foot building. We've opened our office there. We have tons of volunteers who are helping us out. We have a phenomenal organization. We have a bunch of students and community. Actually, MIT students took an old school bus, gutted it. And um, you can go online to see it at shivaforsenate.com. Amazing. Or my, or my uh, Twitter, VA Shiva. 
That bus has a bed in it. It has a living room, a kitchen, and we're using that to travel across Massachusetts to go direct to people. Good. I was going to ask you that. Yeah, we have a communications <clears throat> director. You know, I know you speak to Ron. Mm-hmm. So we have a. I mean, I'm running this like we run a company. You know. And, and, and you're going to get on the ballot, okay? You're getting a signature. Well, well, so here's the interesting thing. Anyone, yeah. uh, you know, this year, you know, the interesting racket. And by the way, I apologize for the racket. No, 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 no. It has a nice I flavor. Just want my list, yeah, my listeners to know that we're at Curtis Hall here at Tufts, and there's a lot of construction on the street. Yeah, I'll come a little closer to Mike. But, um, you know, this year, not only do you have to get 10,000 signatures, which means you have to collect 20,000, right. but you have to get 15% of the delegates. Right. Um, so that's what we're working on. So we're going to every town, Republican town committee meeting. In fact, I have one in Lowell today. Anyone listening, if you want to come to Lowell, uh, I'll be speaking there. And there we're getting the delegates excited about our campaign. We get in front of people. People get very excited. And the reason they get excited is because I'm not a, a politician who's played the game. Right. You know, been, I, I can't be bought. You know, I've made enough money. Uh, I'm not doing this because I need another job. I have a very successful company I'm running. I love doing what I do, but I love this country. And I'm uh, Trump's win in many ways inspired people like me. In many ways, Trump threw a big bomb that was a necessary disruption. And also, Trump himself, I think, is like what you're describing. He's made his money. He's super successful. He has all the things in life that you could want. And he's doing it. In a sense, at, at great sacrifice, given what he, him and his family have to go through, the garbage that they have to deal with, because he care, he wants to leave a legacy. He cares about the country. He wants to make a difference. I mean, I, I see that there. And so this is sort of where you are. Yeah. And, I, you, know, for, for, you know, anyone who's been to India, people get freaked out when they go to India because they see the differences in wealth. You know, I grew up in Bombay, mm-hmm. which is a cosmopolitan. It's New York on steroids. But I also grew up in a small village where my grandparents were farmers 16 hours a day. I, to me, those uh, kind of people work hard are my people. And I've never forgotten that. I mean, I get up at 4.30 in the morning and I still work until midnight. That's my work day because I honor work. I honor my immigrant parents who did so much. And I honor everyday working people. I really despise these people who are the middle-level functionaries who basically do nothing mm-hmm. except work all day to figure out how they can leech off our system. Well, you know, and, and obviously you would be a person in the U.S. Senate who would work uh, closely with the Trump administration in their efforts to dismantle this unnecessary, bogus layer of government. And also... And, and, and it's unhealthy and unholy interaction with certain private sector people as well. Exactly. And also bring in rational, substantive things. Many of these solutions are very rational. If you take the Paris Accords, if everyone goes to my uh, Twitter, VA underscore Shiva, I did a very good whiteboarding session. You know, I love talking. I love connecting. I love educating people. Anyone on this call, if anyone can call in and tell us one benefit of the Paris Accords you know, a friend yeah. of mine, S.P. Kothari, is a dean at the uh, Sloan School. He's the only MIT professor who exposed the Accords. He said, you know, when you buy Tide or a detergent, people ask you, what's this for? You say, oh, it cleans clothes. No one can tell me, but if you actually follow the Paris Accords through, the entire thing is a scam. If you look sure. at today, you have a bunch of businesses who pollute today. You know, they create products. You and I pay for the products. What the Paris Accord did is in 2030, those same companies can pollute. They're still going to produce products, but the big difference is, though, for that pollution, they're going to have to pay a carbon uh, credit. They're going to have to buy carbon credit from this 
quote-unquote group called the IPC, Al Gore, the old Bush family, etc., and they're going to make trillions. What was going to happen was that group forced the U.S. Congress and the previous administration to create what was called the Green Fund. And this Green Mm -hmm. Fund was essentially going to be used as a way to funnel money to influencers in those 192 countries so they would force their countries to join this Paris Accords. Let me tell you, most of these countries did not want to join it, but they all got bribed. So in other words, this so-called shadowy Green Fund, which sounds good, as President Trump said in his Rose Garden speech, First of all, Trump pointed out, we don't know where the money's going. Well, And and you're going to outline where it is. Well, what I'm saying is... We're talking about $100 billion a year in U.S. taxpayer money. And now they're asking $400 billion a year. So, you know, by getting rid of that pill that, that, that sucks money out of the taxpayer and by perhaps returning it to the earner or investing it into this country, you know, that's what Trump promised to do. And by the way... It has not, it's not going to make a single particle of pollution difference. Um, this thing is just, you know, they're not promoting anything that, that would actually reduce air pollution or water pollution, not only in this country, but in any country. It's, it, basically, it's a permit, it's a permit to pollute. Right. So any, if anyone reads this, it's a permit to pollute, and people are being paid off. And just to give you some numbers, today China puts 11 billion carbon tons into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases. Per the Paris Accords, the way they got China in is they will be allowed to go to 22 billion carbon tons, which means double. And then after 2030, they'll have to start buying carbon credits. So this green fund is used to pay off politicians in these countries to join it. But the IPC and that clan is going to make trillions on this. So for $100 billion down payment is what they were forcing the U.S. to do to make trillions. Let me end on a final note here. Look, my campaign, our slogan is winning the future for you. Let me explain what that means. You know, my history has been, I mean, I've made a lot of wealth by knowing the future and, and gotten built my entire scientific. I could see where email was going. I could see the old-fashioned office. I could see where the Internet was going when I created one of the earliest social media companies, Arts Online. I could see where health is going. Our new company, Cytosol, we're doing digital medicine. And... The history of this country, our founders were futurists. And what we need in Massachusetts is to see that future. You know, the future is not fighting and bickering and creating these false narratives. The future is we stand on the precipice of a golden age. We can create heaven on earth here. We have all the technologies. We can distribute education everywhere through online tools now. I mean, incredible world-class education can reach every inner city school through some very powerful technologies that exist right now. We must save through technology. I mean, organic farming is a technology that comes from the old world. We don't need to destroy and pollute our soil. We Genetically engineered foods are not proven safe. There is no safety assessment standards. And we need to move beyond this disease-based model of Edison. There are new technologies of prevention, nutrition, healthcare, exercise that can really advance people's lives in significant ways. And finally, to get to your issue on borders, look, every human cell... We have 10 trillion cells. I'm talking to you as a biologist now in our body. 10 trillion cells. Every cell has a border, a cell wall. And that cell wall mitigates what comes in and what goes out. You know, make sure viruses don't come in. So if Mother Nature, who, who, which has been a designer for over billions of years through trial and error, created a cell wall, we all, every nation needs a wall. Mark Zuckerberg, you know, he builds a wall around him. Every Hollywood 
person that I've been around in Hollywood has a wall. Yet these people do not want us to have a wall. The contradiction is these people are living in a land of theory and it has nothing to do with reality except when it comes to themselves. They and that's what the real issue they here is. They have a demented idea that there's something not progressive about national sovereignty and, and the basic function of sovereignty is to decide who comes into the nation and who doesn't. I mean, there, there, there's a very there's powerful nothing. aspect of progressive nationalism. You know, when you, if you feel good about yourself, there's nothing wrong with people saying, hey, I'm a Caucasian and I like myself or I'm a black person right. or, you know, the notion, there are certain races who do do this and they do it well Every race should feel proud of themselves. This is not a supremacist thing. No, we're talking in fact, about policies that hurt races. Actually. Exactly. So the notion and, and that's of that's a bigger subject. We can do that. In another right, but a show, notion of a country protecting itself, yeah. having borders, is the essence of a nation. So I find it insane. You know, when I came here, my dad came here first. My mom and I had to wait a year with my sister to come here a year after. So legal immigration is key. One of the other part of our big part of our campaign is. You know, MIT is fundamentally a Votech school. Right. You know, we need to have more Votech schools. For every 17 skilled jobs in Massachusetts, exactly. there's only one person available to take that job on. There's not an issue of unemployment. There's an issue of we don't have enough skilled labor. Okay, so we're reaching toward the end of the program. Uh, Shiva Ayadari, let my listeners know where they can get more information about Thank you. you. Shiva for Senate, S-H-I-V-A for the number four senate.com you can go to our facebook page which is shiva Ayadure. you can go to our twitter we're very active uh we'd love to have you as volunteers every saturday at 11 a.m at 701 concord avenue in cambridge we'll be hosting different events we mm -hmm. want dialogue we want people to have uh debate and dialogue on all of these issues because we believe through real debate and dialogue the truth emerges through rational discussion so keep an eye out on our facebook and our twitter page have you gotten Elizabeth Warren to take note? Well, we have. You know, I uh, if you go to my website, a web page, a uh, Twitter page, we actually told her that, you know, I will uh, do a DNA test. And I took the 23andMe <laughs> and I offered her to do yeah. it. It's gone viral. Uh, Hannity funny. covered it. Inquisitor covered it. It's gone. I think the yeah, Globe covered she it. she herself responded no, to it? No, but, but look, her you lack. You draw her in. Yeah, her lack of response to a person who's a minority, who's an immigrant, who, who she claims shows her attitude. In some ways, it's a, it's a form of racism, you know? Uh, and, form? And I, it, it, Anyways, yeah. It, exactly, yeah. because, you know, so anyway, I'll come back to that, but the issues were hitting her hard, but in my opinion, only a real Indian can beat the fake Indian.